Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast where we talk about plant science. My name is Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. Hi, Joram. <laughs> Very excited. We have had a, cha a chaotic week and a chaotic day and a chaotic last few minutes and hours and everything is chaos today, huh? <laughs> yes. Which is, you know, sometimes we're com here complaining about how things are a little bit boring. So the chaos is, is adding some excitement to our lives. <laughs> Yeah, at least it's doing that. Um, I mean, we will talk about later the, the mistakes that I made today. Um, but yeah, <laughs> Just it's like been... Air Yarum's mistakes, that's our plan. <laughs> All of them. So when you were six years old, what mistakes did you make back then? Um, and then just work our way up from there until we get to today. Yeah, that seems like the way to go. Um, to be honest, I, I forget already the second mistake. I remember the big mistake that I did today. But uh, what was the other thing? You know what mistake you're making? You're not muting your microphone on our video call. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a mistake. <laughs> wow, we're doing well. <laughs> That's me. That that other background noise of something binging. That one's me. <laughs> yeah, I think now, now, like, just a couple of seconds into the show, we should actually have our technology running. <laughs> Yep. Ah, um, yeah. So I was just asking, I, I came to stop podcasting. I couldn't find my phone. Yoram had to call my phone so I could I could find it. And then I couldn't find my gin. And I mentioned, okay, he should call my gin as a stupid, very lame joke. But then you said something about Apple and mm -hmm. I don't know what that was. They just released a thing called AirTags. It's like a $30 round puck. It's like a, a big coin um, mm -hmm. with like a battery inside and some like fancy chips and with that it's possible to track the location of this across the world it doesn't have gps but it's sort of using the other iphones around it to sort of send where it, where it's at it's like encrypted and stuff oh. um the beautiful thing about this is that like this little puck has no attachment points whatsoever it's like a smooth mm -hmm. whole less uh, surface uh, so you buy like for $30 you buy the thing and then you buy for another $30 a silicon strap that you can actually attach it to somewhere so you end up adding I like, reckon it would be easy just to like get your baby to swallow it and then you always know where your baby is like this like just <laughs> ingest it like somehow I mean there are other crevices we can tuck it into as adults but like oh I think God. just into a crevice and we're on our way that's that's the future I mean, maybe if there was one that was a bit like monocle shaped, like it was clear in the center and then you could just have like this monocle that would also, <laughs> because also realistically, like adults, we have our phones, so we don't really need it for people. We need it for like small people who don't have phones yet, like babies. Babies and pets, although they say it's not pets. meant to be used for pets because like when your pet runs away, it usually doesn't run away into an urban crowd where there's lots of iPhones around that can actually it's also, track it's the e thing. It's usually because it hates you, so let it go. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> trying to well. break but up with you to, like, if you love it. Let it go. A park or a forest, and when there's nobody with a phone around, then you can't track it. So it's all based on sort of the existing network of phones that are around it. Can I also mention that there's that thing where people are like, oh, you know, dogs, they love me so much. Dogs are like so faithful. And yet somehow there are a lot of lost dogs. Like, it means you're <laughs> dog is trying to get away from you like if if it's a really really smart because it's a dog and it's left it wanted to leave that's all i'm saying <laughs> we have something about dog potential dog intelligence also later Wait. i think today um okay so we can re revisit that idea of stupid dogs um <laughs> i mean i'm definitely the person who back to the apple thing i lose stuff all the time I, i'm very chaotic yeah it and would I, be perfect for you 
It'll like, be good for me. In in university, I actually got one of those things, which is basically this, but it just emits a sound when you clap um, or whistle. Mm-hmm. I think when you whistle, um, which was great. I had it on my keys because when I was at university, I had to actually have keys to get home um, back into my house. And then I had an Italian teacher who had a high-pitched voice and it just kept on setting off the thing. So it would just like be constantly beeping and I had, to, I had to get rid of it. Like this person would talk and every time he would say something, it would just be like beeping in the background. I remember I had one as well when I was a kid and you had to whistle very hard and loud, I remember. Like it wasn't Should just Should we like, practice that on air now for the listeners to hear? Do you think no, that's- please don't. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, it must have been a very high-pitched voice um, of that teacher. Yeah, I was like, with all technical things, I was like, is, am I interested in this? Do I want this? Do I want to throw money at this? And then I couldn't think of anything I would attach a $30 puck to so I would know where the thing is because the things that I hold dear, I usually know where they are and the other things don't really deserve a $30 puck. It would be interesting if it was like actively tracking continuously instead of just like, Telling does it actively track continuously or just tell you where it is when you've lost it? Uh, continuously, so you can like, and with okay. the new phones, you can even they have like a, a new chip thing, and it has like on the display, it can point where it's at within like an accuracy of I don't know fifty centimeters or something. So within a room with the new phone and this thing, um, the thing that your phone would point to where the object is, and then you could like know it, like- that you have to look in a certain wardrobe instead of like the entire room. I'd like to see that on a cat, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be interested in that data. That's- <laughs> I mean, there's some companies selling like, um, what's it, the name, the collars, cat collars, uh, where you mm-hmm. can attach the thing. Um, I mean, our cats, they constantly course, lose their course. collars. So I that would mean not only it's like the five buck for the for the collar, then it's always like a $30 Apple thing. Although you could technically I mean, find also- it again then. <laughs> It's not solving the original problem where I first have to find my phone in order to find my cat now. Like, I mean, it's just, just adding problems on problems. It's not it's just solving like anything for me. A long chain of things you have to find, like a quest, like an adventure game, where you just have, like, you have to find, like, your phone and you can find your keys, then you can leave the house to find your cat. And <laughs> I usually, I usually have human help for that, and I find that actually works better than the machines. I think, like, yeah, go figure. <laughs> Human help often Yoram works better my than the machine. For me. <laughs> Yoram, do you remember where I put my camera? Like, do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it's been a bit of a weird week for both of us. It's, I think this is the week in the entire pandemic that you and I have talked the least. Yeah. It's been quite bizarre, actually. I've, I've heard like, what, four or five texts from you in the last seven days. I thought for a while you might be in a coma. It feels like we haven't talked in like three weeks or so. Although it was just last week, because there was pretty much radio silence between us. I don't know mm. what I did, Tegan, but please let me know what did I do wrong this time. Um, you <laughs> refused to move in with me and thus pay the other half of a rent, <laughs> which I need now that my housemate is moving out. I and tried, woo. but they would always kick me out of the airport. Like I would go there with my, my bags and they were like, no, you can't leave. Although I think I, it's... For probably us, it's Germany like would not stop me. Probably UK would stop me, but Germany probably wouldn't. Yeah, I think our borders are pretty hard closed. I think you guys have are still more into that. Let's have liberties and let's let's be able to fly everywhere. Oh, yeah, but I think like, there's even a five thousand pound fine just for like rocking up at the airport at the moment. I saw somewhere. Ever I since the first I, five people got vaccinated, we are publicly discussing what else we can open up now. Now that we have like five people with the vaccine, so we we just went into like kind of the. 
we're at the last stage of opening up things. So like pubs and stuff are opening. Hmm. And I found a really nice, I'll see if I can, I think I saved it. There was, so I guess earlier this week or last week, time means nothing now. Um, but the the PM, Boris, gave a, a talk about this kind of new openings. And one of the things is basically you can now actually have other people in your house which is good if you've not been in a bubble with your significant other or any mm -hmm. random person you might want to like actually hug or let's say see naked, just like putting that out there. Um, apparently that's not appropriate to do outside and also it's been super cold. Um, <laughs> but the <laughs> I was looking at one of these kind of timelines so that the PM gave a live speech on um, television and they do these kind of news times lights where it's like, okay, now he's announced that we can do this. Now he's announced that we can do this. And then at um, 5.20, it was PM refuses to say who he will be hugging. <laughs> So it's like, as of Monday, it's next Monday, we can now hug people. Like, we're now legally allowed to hug people who are not in our bubble. Um, and he's not going to let us know who that is because that would be weird. It would be, though, really. Like, I mean, I don't know if he has a partner, to be honest, but like, I, I guess the partner would be in his bubble anyway. Yeah, but so, and somebody outside the bubble, yeah, that's weird. Maybe we could like have a little national lottery where like the the first like if you you win the lottery you get to touch the the PM in like an appropriate way but like <laughs> I mean to be honest I think the first person I would hug is my my parents again properly because like we've been seeing like they they visited last weekend but we mostly spent the day outside and we are also like careful of like we just did like the the elbow bump thing which is mm -hmm. awkward to do with your parents, but at the same time, we all feel uh, like insecure about about I, being close to I'm one another. Look, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to raise you one here. It's awkward to do on a date. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Ranking of like most awkward place to like. Uh, I think that. Uh, I really like think? it for the workplace. Like, if it if that becomes a thing, and I don't want to touch people's hands in the workplace. I do not trust where they. I've, I've gone on this rant before. I don't yeah. like touching other people's hands. This is a pre-pandemic thing for me. I've always been grossed out by it. And if you've ever shaken my hand before, I have immediately gone to the bathrooms to wash my hands. Um, but and to then me, the elbow, hand cream. The, the the elbow bump is the the sign for like we would like to hug. But we can't right now. So if I would go for, for example, for um, an interview at a new job and I would do like the elbow bump, it would be like, no, we're not that close yet. No, we can't elbow bump, dude. Um, you can Finger guns it is. <laughs> yeah. Pew, 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 pew. Bonus points if you make little sounds. Pew, pew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I, I could go without handshakes for the rest of my, my life. I think handshakes are super weird and there's like this whole concept about like the whole culture of like who presses harder and asserting dominance and like the order and not not crossing it and nobody enjoys it like nobody's <laughs> like oh yeah but like it's worth it it's worth to do all the the fancy stuff because like the in the end you get a handshake and that's really cool no everybody's somebody like, must enjoy handshakes there must be somebody hey call, write into us guys if you actually enjoy the physical sensation of somebody touching their hand on your hand in a business setting no. I, yeah. I can't imagine it ever being uh, a nice thing. It's always, it's always awkward. It's always, yeah. I think I've I've said this also before, but like I always, I always wonder how much of this is 
like my distrust of this is based on my own like mod germophobia, but also like growing up in Australia where I was always slightly sweaty. So I don't want to hug people because like <laughs> I probably smell bad. I don't want to touch their hands because my hands are slightly sweaty. Like I just I'm not sure how much of my anxiety slash phobia is shaped on the fact that yeah. in Australia you're always just a little bit sweaty. <laughs> but at the same time, wouldn't that mean that everybody else is also a little bit sweaty? Wouldn't that be like is is that a win? Is that is that what you want out of a situation? Like would, at, the, at the least best get case understanding. scenario is that that guy is sweatier than I am, so he'll give me his sweat instead of me giving me him his my sweat. Like is that <laughs> yeah? Is fair that enough. what we're looking forward to as a society? <laughs> No, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Touching hands is is weird. Like there's like with somebody that you like and that you want to sort of hold hands on a date or like while walking, that's fine. But outside of that, I would situ- obviously situation, I would still make them wash and like ethanol their hands first. Like that's no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I did that to my wife earlier when we went out and we we're like, <laughs> like walking psh- side psh- by side, and she like tried to ha- get my hand. I was like immediately sanitizing everything. <laughs> Um, mm. yeah, no, no chances here. Flame purifies everything, especially <laughs> if you spray it with ethanol. Like, I did it under the clean bench all the time, like spraying my <laughs> hand, lighting it on fire. It's like, see, you, you, you joke, but you actually did. Yeah. We all did. If you've ever worked with a flame and ethanol to sterilize things, you have set something on fire that should not have been on fire. Although some it's- things are meant to be on fire, like the little spatulas you have for the bacteria plates. I always enjoyed like lighting them on fl- on on fire, like the ethanol on them on fire. Yeah, I've got my hand, my glove on fire, but like it was okay, just like was a little bit. My friend managed to light the entire beaker full of ethanol on fire, then threw that beaker of ethanol fire into the sink, and the sink was then on fire. Yeah, but like luckily once the ethanol, I find it scary when when the fire is inside the fume hood because with the uh, with the ventilation, you have a lot of air that's pushed through it, so it burns very well. So. I find that a little bit scary. You mean like a sterile bench situation, yeah. Yeah, but I know I, I had like the beaker on fire, but that's like put a lid on and it's fine. Like, it. <laughs> yeah. Ah, fire. Like, I'm, I sometimes I miss lab days of, of like the little dangers. I mean, now the most dangerous thing that can happen is like I drop my coffee mug on my feet um, and yeah, I can't like nice poison that- myself. I can't like completely stain my clothes blue. I can't set stuff stuff on fire by accident. It's like very low risk my life now. Like the lab was definitely more high risk. And then sometimes, sometimes I miss the thrill of having something where you know if I do this wrong, it will hurt me. It will hurt the world around me. It will get me in trouble. So I better focus now. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that thing of, like, now it's time to go home. My body is telling me I have to go home. That's kind of a nice feeling, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And now you just, like, go home means, like, getting up from your chair, turning around, and then sitting down on your couch or bed, and then, like, okay. <laughs> How? How did you bring it there? Um, you also have something you wanted to mention about Elon Musk. Um <laughs> I had I'm this, not sure I want to hear about Moss, but let's let's try this. Why I, not? I just I had it. I, I came across today when I was reading the news and um, for for like plant science stuff, and I wanted to put it in the fun stuff, but it doesn't fit there. It doesn't really fit here anyway. But I just found it funny because it's, it's not fun. Spoiler alert: it doesn't fit in the fun stuff because it's not fun. Elon Elon Musk um, or Elon Trump, as I call him here, because like he has some Trump style tweets now nowadays where he just like announces stuff, and now he now like in March he announced. By the way, Tesla is buying Bitcoin and you can buy your car with Bitcoin. Um, and so the Bitcoin 
value skyrocketed and everybody's like, look, finally, a real-life application for Bitcoin. It's not just for drugs. Um, and so, like, the, the the price increased quite a bit. Um, a lot of people got rich Wait, on this. Sorry. sorry, sorry, were people using Bitcoin for drugs? Yeah, most people are using Bitcoin for drugs. Like, it's literally, like, either as a, like, investment scam or mm-hmm. if to buy drugs. These are the two okay. points of Bitcoin. And while doing that... Bitcoin is burning, like the whole system is burning the energy equivalent of like Belgium or something. Um, They are like the Bitcoin infrastructure burns more energy than Amazon or Facebook or Google or anything while providing no benefit to society apart from buying drugs or (laughs) investing. Um, So it's, it's, it's an insane, stupid technology that nobody should use. And now... Elon, Elon Musk saw that as well and it's like we're stop we're not accepting bitcoin anymore bitcoin is bad bitcoin is is using too much energy um and i imagine that some people like made their cut and now they're like okay let's get out of this this is a pr disaster because they, like there's all these studies coming out now how bad bitcoin is for the planet um and yeah we're gonna, i'm i'm putting a link to one of them in the show notes but just know that it has like so it's an, an article that came out in 2018, but there have also been like rebuttals about people saying, how, like, this is like saying it's going to cause global warming, basically. And then there's like discussions about that as well. Um, so yeah. we can link that I in mean, there. It's, it's a bit more nuanced, like old things, but in the end, um, you, you're using, like the entire concept is built on, you have to put in energy to pr- prove to show that you put in work and then you get money in return and the money is equivalent to the energy you put in and as the money increases the energy has to increase otherwise the system doesn't work anymore and therefore and then in the end it's like a pyramid scheme like you always need to find somebody who's a little bit um, stupider than you are and convince them to join bitcoin and they put in their real money you take out the, <laughs> the real money of the system and you snowball like this and musk was playing the game now for like I mean- a bit of a month and i guess they cashed in. They say Tesla is not selling their Bitcoin, what they're holding. But imagine some other people in the last couple of days sold it well because the course immediately crashed. Like they lost 10% of value immediately, all Bitcoin, after he tweeted that. So Wait, it lost money after he said you could buy? Yeah, after he said... Oh, like, no. He said after, it and then he took it back again. Yeah, and after taking it okay. back, they lost money. Like the Bitcoin Are course crashed. Are you following crashed. Elon Musk on Twitter? Is that no, what you're doing with no, your no. life? No, like, I think I muted okay. or blocked him because like it's I, I can't stand it. I find him. Uh, I think uh, Musk is a horrible person. No, but I I read this. I think I like that his name is Musk. I like this idea of him like like spreading his Musk everywhere. That seems like the right. It's a vibe and yeah, it no, works as a vibe. He's also terrible for science. You know, like he's shooting all of these satellites into space so that the telescopes can't get clear images anymore because the his satellites are reflecting so much light because he refuses to put a non-reflective coating on them. And so now all of the images that are shot from from the Earth into space they have these stripes of these these satellites that are flying in very close formation in a very low orbit so they're really hard to remove from the pictures and astronomers hate him for that and he's just like you know there's this um this trend on tiktok where it's like say you are an ex without saying you're an ex and like one that would come up to me is like say you are a let's use like molester as the gentle term without saying you're a molester um (laughs) There was a tweet where he was like, oh, yes, there will not be Earth laws in space. Like, when we go to space, there will not be Earth laws. And I was just like, you just came out and said it. Like, I hope everyone put you on every list now as, like, this guy 
doesn't like. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying all laws are good. There are some very horrible laws. Um, sure, but that dude, that dude who's like, it's my laws now. You stay away from that dude, he, and preferably also- we lock up that dude. Like realistically, like. <laughs> <laughs> he also said that um, a, ve- a way to get to Mars would be if you can't afford a ticket, that you sort of um, what what's the word like you put yourself indebted, into, indebted yeah, to this course, yeah. and then you you work off your debt See, when you I'm are not, on Mars. Like, I've not even heard that, but I could guess based on what I sort of surmised. <laughs> about, like I, I hadn't heard about that, but I could guess. So yeah, he's um, like he's a bad person. This should not Anyone be who, an who... Elon Musk bashing hour. This should be a, a podcast about plant science. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's talk let's... about the paper of the week, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could go on for weeks, but we shan't. I literally could. Like, I have so much, <laughs> so much stuff that I have to say. It's the paper of the week. The paper of this week is a paper that I kept secret from Tegan because I sent yeah. you <laughs> the wrong link. I was like, we're doing this paper. And then I did another paper. Um, but to be fair, the, the both papers had a very similar introduction. And so I mixed um, up the tabs. <laughs> and that in itself would have been fine, except that you also hid the document where we write the episode notes. You banned me from accessing it. So normally I would go there and sort of like follow the link via that just to like, you know, check what you've already seen and what you've written. Usually Yoram writes his notes before I get in there. Um, but I also couldn't get there. So I was like sitting and reading the article and I was like reading this different article. And then I'm like, Yoram, why won't you let me into the document with the notes? The show is in like half an hour. And then he lets me and I'm like, that's that's not what I'm reading. So I read Surprise. a really nice paper. <laughs> I read a really nice paper about um, tobacco mosaic virus um, in um, and also about priming, which is kind of the the topic of today. And they had this really cool experiment where they tagged tobacco. So tobacco mosaic virus is amazing because it's like it's the first virus that was discovered. Like it's like the OG virus um, that was found to be a virus. um, Super, super special. And... um, in this paper, they tagged the mosaic virus with GFP, so a green fluorescent protein. And then they sort of tracked how it was moving through these plants. And then they also stained something else with a different color. So they basically like shone this UV and they could see with the naked eye this GFP kind of shining as the virus was moving around. And then another thing, a hormone signal, as it was glowing with a completely different color in response to the movement. And it was great and beautiful and fantastic. And I didn't read the new paper. <laughs> and that sounds really exciting, but it's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about uh, Metinma separata herbivory primes maize resistance in systemic leaves by Salif Umaluk uh, from the lab of Jan Kuang Wu, from, uh, published in the Journal of Experimental Botany um, in May this year. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> I got as far as Mephimna separata is a northern army worm, so it's basically a type of little caterpillar bug that eventually grows up to be not a beautiful butterfly, but a kind of shabby looking moth. And that's where I got with this paper. <laughs> so take Why it away are you your not arm. doing your homework, Tegan? <laughs> um, so <laughs> what they found in this paper, and I found it is really cool, um, is that maize is better at protecting itself against certain insects when it has seen these insects when it was a small little baby maze, when it was like a seedling um, and then it was already attacked by these insects, it would 
be primed and then later on be able to defend itself more effectively against um, against these the same insects later on. So Yoram chose this paper basically because it's very topical because priming is kind of similar to the idea of how like vaccinations work, right? It's this idea <laughs> of like showing the body something and then your body's like, oh, I can make an immune response and then I'm, I'm sort of used to it and it's kind of like prepared for the next time it sees that thing. Yeah. So I feel like you've kind of chosen this because you always want to talk about COVID. I always ban you from talking about COVID and you're trying to like get this into the conversation somehow but in a very nice way i think priming is kind of a a positive experience or like a a nice thing that we can do i mean in this case it's also being attacked and then sort of remembering that and then (laughs) reacting strongly again so it's it's similar like an immune system but it works completely different and i want to make that clear at the beginning like an immune system in in vertebrates in, in humans uh, especially like it involves many different cell types it involves like antibodies it involves um special memory cells and like it's a whole big complicated thing with dedicated cell types and dedicated organs that make up the immune system where p- mm-hmm. priming in plants we haven't fully understood it yet but it doesn't work like this at all like it doesn't have the same sort of dedicated memory cells um at least as far as we know like um is so. that because is that because animals are really important and complex and plants are boring and simple and stupid now, because plants, they uh, figured out the best ways to do stuff efficiently, I would say. Hey, they're just good so, much, so much more clever than us humans. Like, we have to, like, go through... <laughs> efficiency. Uh, efficiency is the buzzword, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, there are some examples in the plant world where we know already about priming. Um, there's, like, very famous or, like, very known experiments about heat priming, where you put the plants in moderate heat for a bit and then you take them back into room temperature for a while and then you put them in high heat and then the ones that saw like the moderate increase in temperature before they deal with uh, better with like the uh, hot uh, temperatures than the ones who were always kept at room temperature and it suddenly only saw the hot temperatures so that is a very sort of well-known type of experiment where there's a lot of work around um, there is some studies where you um, where tomatoes were primed with certain pests, sort of they were attacking the leaves, and then um, later on they would return, and the, the plant would respond stronger stronger against them than if it wouldn't have seen them before. And there's even some um, places where airborne volatiles, so molecules that are emitted by the plants that travel through the air from one plant to the other, can sort of prime this plant in a way that when it then actually gets attacked by something it already has its defenses up. It's basically an, a scream that you can smell from the yeah. other plants. I mean, there's a story that like the, the fresh smell of, of grass when you cut it, that we enjoy so much very often, is actually like a lot of stressed grass, grass blades that are screaming mm. exactly like that, but with smell instead of with, with voices. Why do we enjoy it? Like, why? It's, it's quite a... Pl- like, most humans find that to be a pleasant smell, right? I wonder what... I, I, I don't know. I c- Maybe it- because we can eat grass-like plants, so there's, like, a benefit for us to not be turned off by the smell of, like, chomping on lettuce or something? Yeah, I don't know. Or it's, it's like, something that we learned. Like, it's usually... In, in summer and it's at least for okay, me. Okay, we need like, two children. One of them, every time they smell the grass, we starve them. The other one, we let them eat some lettuce and then we see which of the child grows up. 
<laughs> liking the smell of grass. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. I just feel like sometimes I feel like human experiments are just much simpler than, than planned experiments. Yeah, like, also ethically much easier to do. <laughs> I'm complicated. Okay, so you have here something saying that priming is very different from vertebrate memory, as you kind of explained. And the more accurate comparison is when you um, are in kind of a warm bath and then you go into a hotter one, it's okay. Or you can like gradually have this water heating up and you're okay. But if you go straight from cold to warm, you get a shock. Yeah. Although in, in, in the plant priming experiments, you often have a gap in between these. Um, mm-hmm. So you would go sort of in a warm bath and then you go out again and then you go in a hot bath and then you don't mind the hot bath. But if you go directly into the hot bath, you're like, oh, this is kind of hot. Um, I don't like it that much. So, And my, my memory from seeing some presentations on these many years ago is that part of what makes the, the priming work is that when you first have, for example, that hot, that warm period for the plant, it starts to like activate some of its genes but important part of activating those genes is like getting them accessible so like usually dna it's kind of like this huge long string but it's not just like there as an open string it's kind of wound up into a ball and in order to like find the right genes you have to like unwind the string and look through it and like make those bits of dna accessible to be read to then make rna and proteins so my understanding which is probably a bit vague is that part of that thing is that the warming sort of helps find in the ball of string where the right genes are. And then when it becomes hot, those genes are already kind of out there and, and like they've got a little tag on them. So then it's really easy for the plant to be like, oh, it's those ones. Let's let's yeah. go. We have them. Yeah. You pretty much reduce the initial response phase where it takes some time to sort of understand and put in that like in- and you're like trying to unravel it and you've like you can't find the end so you just kind of like take your scissors and start cutting things to try and create ends <laughs> and then everything gets a mess and like yeah and you're saving that, that because you did that before when it wasn't wasn't as stressful and now yep. when it, it's like go time you're like oh i have everything already laid out oh, and i can oh, go oh and call back you've like put one of those little apple things on the spot so that you know <laughs> you put this little coin thing you've got a special like a cat collar, but for DNA, where you can attach your Apple coin onto the heat responsive genes on the DNA. And it's, then you just have to, I don't forget how it works. Do you whistle to make that kind of call out? Or you like, you, you take out your phone? You need to find your phone first. Then the cell goes it. and looks for the phone. <laughs> you put another cat collar on your phone. And then, and that's all happening inside a plant, guys. It's, it's really amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. How, how did nature do that? <laughs> incredible <laughs> um so yeah in in this study that we're looking at today so, uh, they are investigating maize and mm-hmm. um its relationship to a specific insect the northern armyworm within the separata that is a very important pest for um, maize plants in asia so there's it's it's um yeah they not only have this sort of re- symbiotic is the wrong word here like the the parasitic relationship but it's also sort of economically uh, relevant yeah it's the opposite pretty much of a symbiosis like one of them is really not getting much of it out of it <laughs> the maze is not winning um and there's been previous work looking at this this lack of winning for the maize in the context of the army worm. And people have looked at how the maize can respond to the bugs. And they found that maize actually has a response, like a molecular response to oral secretions of the bugs, which is basically just a fancy way of saying saliva. (laughs) Um, But like, what's kind of cool is that it's like, it's not just the fact that the bugs are biting on the leaves because they also could like, 
scratch at the maze or like wound the maze. Um, and that was getting like a little bit of a wounding response. But like, if you actually add the saliva on top of the scratches, that's when things go crazy and the mage is like, uh, 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 I'm getting attacked. Yeah. And so what they, yep. yeah, <laughs> with exactly that sound. <laughs> you like, with that you sound. sounded not super convinced. <laughs> no. like, it's mm. not. That they, and, and this is stuff that was known from like previous studies, this relationship and the tests that it's not only the wounding that's doing, um, the, that's triggering, triggering the reaction, but it's actually stuff in the spit, in the saliva of these bugs. Uh, and so now that I wanted to know um, whether there is some priming. Can maze sort of react stronger if it had seen the same bug before? And to do that, they created three different treatments that they would do in their experiments. Um, they would just wound the leaves with a pinwheel, so just do mechanical damage to, um, to the leaf. Sorry, is a pinwheel like a pizza wheel? I imagine so. Like, I, I don't know if they actually called it pinwheel. It's how I translated it for myself. Uh, I think they had something else. But like, it's like a me mechanical wounding with a wheel that they run over it, over the leaf. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, sometimes when you do certain pastries, you sort of poke it instead of cut it. I think I imagine oh, like We that. had that thing last week where they were using that, that face pokey the micro needle. needle. Yeah. I don't Maybe know it's that. Maybe it's like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, then they would do the same thing, like mechanically wound the leaves and then um, use just the oral secretion, so just saliva from the bugs and apply that without the actual bugs. And then they would put the actual bugs on, on some plants. Um, so you would have these three different experiments, just mechanical mm -hmm. wounding, sort of an artificial insect bite where there is no actual insect, but there is the saliva and there is the wounding. And then actual insects eat feeding on the leaves for four days. And then they would um, treat of maize seedling the third leaf that would emerge and um, they would start damaging that third leaf for four days every day they would like they would leave the the caterpillars on there for four days or they would go every day for four days and do some damage um and then they waited a week and then they added some actual caterpillars to all of the different different plants and just looked how fat these caterpillars would go get would get and at this point, I'd like to mention that from here on out, I'm only reading Yoram's notes. So <laughs> if I say something wrong, come at him. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the reason they were looking at how fat the caterpillars are is because of a specific defense compound. So the way the maize can defend itself. And it does this by producing some fancy um, metabolites, which are called benzozanzanoids or BXs for short. And basically, BXs are designed to give insects indigestion. So the insects eat BXs. They are unhappy. They have the runs. Um, Yoram has something here about reconsidering lifestyle choices. Um, and overall, they don't grow as well. So, of course, ultimately, you get a less fluffy caterpillar. And this is then what they also observed with their experiment, that uh, when the caterpillars would eat the pre-treated plants that had the oral secretions added to them or had actual caterpillars on them, um, they would then uh, weigh about half the, uh, half the weight of the, the bugs that would eat undisturbed plants or the plants that were just mechanically wounded. So there was a growth penalty for these bugs. They could not... Um, yeah, they, they, they would have trouble with the secondary metabolites, with these BXs, and that would stop them from growing very well. And this was the readout that they had for the experiment to see that even though um, the um, 
or they, they could see that the priming had an effect that when plants were primed, when they had this pretreatment, they would have their defenses up um, already, and that would mean that the caterpillars would have a harder time to actually feed and grow on these plants, which would then come at a fitness disadvantage to the caterpillars and protect the plants because they would not grow as fast and re reproduce as fast. I lost my spot now because I just had a very good idea that we should rewrite the very hungry caterpillar. But on the first day, he eats, like, is it a plum on the first day? An apple? I, I never read it, to be honest. Um, wow. it's, it's not really a thing in Germany, the hungry caterpillar. Like, it's and not then the second day, the apple has, like, primed itself, and then he tries to eat it, and then he feels sick. This is just a beautiful story. Anyway, um, okay, Yoram <laughs> has highlighted a section for me to read now. They... <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Actually, I thought I would do this now and, and you would continue your caterpillar story, uh, but you can also do this part. <laughs> I don't think I need to tell the very hungry caterpillar on air. I, I understand there are cultural differences regarding who has read this book, but if you haven't, um, I guess look it up online. I'm sure there's like YouTube videos of people reading the very hungry caterpillar. It's a classic for a reason. Like it's up there with The Killer Mockingbird. Yeah, no, I, I know that I've seen the cover of the book. I'm looking at it. And there's also the Kleine Raupe Nimmersatt is the t title in German. Um, and I know the title, but I never read the book. So it does exist Kleine here. Kleine Raupe Zimmersatt? Nimmersatt, which means that, never... That is full. That is, yeah, not hungry anymore. I don't even know if there's like an English tr translation for that. Uh, yeah, satiated is basically like yeah. we have satisfied and satiated that which come from the same root, right? Yeah. Cool. But um <laughs> This is both entomology and etymology because we're talking about <laughs> bugs and language and I always mess them up and in this case it doesn't even matter. <laughs> so All right. Declaner offers in what Nimazat. Nimazat. Oh, never that. Nimazat. Cool. Um, Yoram, take yeah. it away. <laughs> some <laughs> so, science, please. So they did also some some more experiments here, and we're just glossing over them because they get quite technical and are more interesting for the people who actually do the research. But for us, we can remember from the study that um, it's not as important um, how much a leaf gets damaged when it's primed, but how long the damage takes for. So doing it for four days or three days has more of a difference than if you damage the leaf a little bit or damage it a lot. Um, so they would run mm -hmm. the pinwheel a couple of times over the over the leaf and they would see no difference from just doing it once um, as long as they did it for four days. Um, then there is a very important hormone, jasmonic acid, um, a plant hormone that is required for this priming reaction. They used some mm -hmm. mutants that could not make jasmonic acid and then they could not see the same priming effect. So they could see that um, without jasmonic acid, the whole system doesn't work, um, which is... Um, interesting to know in the context of priming, but in the context of sort of pest response, like a response to insects, that ver that's very common. That jasmonic acids is one of the first sort of things that comes yeah. up and triggers all kinds of defenses. It's sort of, it's the alarm signal. It's like the bell that's ringing, like, look, we have to get like up in arms and fight back against some insects. Yeah. Um, the other things is that um, the priming changed a lot to the transcription of many different plant defense-related genes, which makes sense. Um, and what I wanted to mention here sort of to, to get into the context of what does it matter, can we use this, is that um, the priming had an effect for up to 12 days after the initial attack. It was the strongest, I think, at three or seven days after the initial mm -hmm. attack. Um, but after 12 days, you could still see 
um, a more pronounced defense activity than if you would not have had the priming before. So what is the importance of these findings beyond just feeding caterpillars in the lab? Yoram's written down for me, yo, plants are not like moving. Wait, are like not moving, so they got to prepare. I don't think I can pull off a yo, so I'm just going to say that, <laughs> as we often mention, plants are sessile organisms, so they need to be able to defend themselves. And especially in the context of human crops, attacks from pathogens, pests, bugs, that comes down to how much food we humans can get in the end. If the bugs eat everything, we don't get anything. Yeah. And why do the plants even deal with all the priming? Why, like, if they are better defended when they had the, the activity before, why don't they just always have their defenses up? Because then they can't be damaged as easily by the caterpillars. And the answer is very simple. It's, like, costly to the plant. It costs energy to... Put en to create molecules that are that only function ha is to, to fend off insects because if the insects don't come, you spend a lot of cellular energy to make defenses that that are not needed. So the plants have this responsive system that gets only activated when there's actually a need for them, and that's an evolutionary advantage over just spending all your energy constantly to have all kinds of defenses, um, just in the hope that some some of them might be useful for you. Yeah, which not to be that person, but very um, relatable for any of us who have been in a COVID world for the last 12 years. Like that constant anxiety when you're always primed and waiting and ready. Mm -hmm. It's not great. It has an existential toll and it turns out not just on humans, but also on plants. Um, ultimately, the idea is that if we understand how these mechanisms work, not only like the molecular signals like jasmonic acids that are involved, but also how long it takes um, and, you know, how things are done, we might be able to improve this so that in the off state when the plants are not primed and not stressed, you know, that that's, happens for longer. And then when they do have a, a stress, they respond faster and quicker and stay primed for longer without using up all of their energy. So... As with many um, plant-related things, especially with response to crops, we want that we can make the plants better at defending themselves while they don't use up all of their resources. Yeah. It's always about striking the balance, right? Like, mm. we want Trade-offs is the key word, I think. <laughs> like, always in biology. Like, we want a lot of grain from the maize, but at the same time, we want it to not get sick, but we can't have maize that's like super good at defending itself but then making like tiny grains so um we have to find a balance and understanding that as you said can help us to get like a maze that responds very quick and is really good at just turning on and off the defenses um as it needs so that was um the methinma separata herbivory primes maize resistance in systemic leaves by self ulmaluk uh, from the lab of jangkwan wu uh published in the journal of experimental botany this may Okay, I think what we're going to do here is play a game. And the game is that I'm going to start explaining to you the methods of an experiment. <laughs> and you have to buzz in when you know how this experiment relates to plants. <laughs> so I'm a researcher and I go to a fish farm in Le Bren, France. And from this fish farm, I purchase 486 common carp. Uh-huh. I then they take these carp to the lab and I knock them out with an anesthetic <laughs> and I cut into them 
and I put something into their muscle. I then sew the fish back up and give them a little bit of time to recover. Okay. I then take the carp to four different locations along a canal, roughly nine carp at each location um, in two different years. So we've got some nice replication there. And I let the carp go. That's one part of the experiment. Is it like a sensor that you sew into them or just a payload, like a, a message a that sensor. you want to send a follow fellow researcher like further down the stream? You're just like <laughs> the weirdest kind of like message in a bottle is like message in a it's carp. Like message in message a dozen a pigeon, <laughs> But make it cruel. Let's really like cut into the animals before we put the message there. Um, you've cut, yeah, you've got the idea. So they're, they're putting a sensor in and they're actually putting um, like acoustic transmitters so something that's kind of like letting out some some signal that can then be tracked um acoustically so you can basically just find out i mean it's basically the apple coin thing but it, it beeps instead so but the carp beep or like there's no, a microphone in the carp and you beep around the microphone and the carp gets the signal it's called a vemco vr2w hydrophone ah, yeah so i don't think it's actually <laughs> beeping so much as sending out like a, a radio wave kind of thing that can be picked up mm -hmm. i think it's it's i don't think the carp are like what the <laughs> is that noise sorry you have to beep now <laughs> speaking of beeps um, i don't think the carp are like wondering why their ears are ringing or why there's like constant like unce, unce, unce music in their head or like literally in their in their head like fully in their head um i think it's sending out signals okay I mean, it could have um, been like the experiment that's probably not this experiment but that i could imagine is like you want to know how sound travels in like some streams and if they can use that to navigation so you put a microphone in the carp play some defined sounds at points in the stream look at where the carp is going through the stream and then record how much sound it gets and then you can realize if the sound can be actually heard or not to figure out if carps could hear so if you can if you could play the music and they would enjoy it That would be my experiment. But go on, tell us the real I, I experiment. I mean, I like it, but can you tell me how that relates to plants? Like, can you somehow weave the relevance to plants oh, into that fabric? That's, yeah. I, I just thought about uh, um, carps and their enjoyment of music. So, no. Yeah, then tell us okay. the real experiment. <laughs> so, in a separate experiment conducted several years previously, you get some carp. <laughs> The same kind of carp, the, the common carp. No, this time you don't sedate it. Cool. Instead, what you do <laughs> is you, you keep it kind of in a pet-like way, but actually in a lab. Um, you put it in different types of tanks, and some of them have fast running water, some of them have medium running water, some of them have slow running water. So it's kind of like a, a little treadmill for the carp, but fast and medium and slow. And it's a simulating... Water park. <laughs> It's a water park. It's a carp water park. And you're also, you know, at the water park, you sometimes like a snack. So you give your carp some water park snacks, um, feed them up, and also start collecting their poop. <laughs> okay. A bit a weird turn, but I mean, it's still science. Like, it has to be weird at one point. It's... <laughs> Actually, one of my colleagues' works has decided that every story that has poop in it should be in my expertise like if it's got poop mentioned she's like that's yours <laughs> that's not mine that's yours um which is fair i'm okay with that um okay so those are the two experiments so one of them is um feeding the carp at the water park and the other one is giving the carp some internal dove dove music um what are you doing what has this got to do with plants something about like whatever they eat what it, how it influences their 
biology de depending on the context where they're eating it i don't understand what the chip inside their muscles is doing there for for that apart from the like maybe tracking track, them it's just tracking the carb okay it's just like finding it again so mm -hmm. yeah well, so actually not finding it again it's tracking where they're traveling and how fast they're traveling and how far they're traveling across different areas and across different times of the year so, so like, if the they eat part. like if there's like some sort of monster energy for carb so if they eat specific foods they go fast and if they eat other foods they, they go are slow. eating a specific food what specific food might they be eating that might have a relevant for plants and i am enjoy i'm so smug about this <laughs> this is like the perfect position for me to be in for smugness uh, what are they eating your arm some yes. plant seeds Plant seeds is the answer. So this is a study that came out in the Journal of Functional <laughs> Ecology um, in August last year. And it's tracking temperate fish reveals their relevance for plant seed dispersal. So basically Ooh. they are combining two different experiments and they're trying to understand based on that how significant carp can be in moving plant seeds um, in wide areas. And they found that it can actually be quite common for carp to move seeds as far as four kilometers. And they can even do longer distance dispersal of up to 16 kilometers in other scenarios. And this is pretty important. I mean, obviously, some plants can travel way, way further, like if they're just floating on water and floating, you know, or traveling on the wind, but that's very passive. Whereas like a carp can swim upstream or a, car a carp can like move from one environment to a different environment that might be beneficial for the, the plant. So I think this is a really cool topic, the, the way that animals can disperse plant seeds in kind of bizarre ways that they don't expect. So that second, that water park feeding experiment was to actually understand how well the seeds would survive inside mm -hmm. the carp before they became actually digested because the idea of the seed is that you know the genetic material for the next generation like the, the actual new baby does not want to be digested while the kind of fleshy fruit around it can be nutritious for the fish so they yeah. had that experiment and then they had the how far and where do the carp go experiment and together they found out how carp can usefully move seeds around the world yeah, and waterborne seed dispersal is quite important when you think about like islands and other sort of landlocked um, places. Um, mm. I mean, some like islands within a lake, birds can f travel back and forth there. But when you when it comes to like further out in the sea, I mean, carps are freshwater fish, but other fish could do similar things potentially. Um, I think like, like also passively, so like the coconut is a big one, right? That it's just yeah. like bobbing around on the seawater for for years and years, and then lands. Yeah, and then somewhere, somewhere, and then grow there again, and therefore that's how you get like these these small little islands in the cartoons with one palm tree on them. This is how they're formed. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> how they're formed. Yeah, but that sounds like a that sounds like a fun carp experiment. Still, I would like to know whether carp enjoy music. Um, with my little experiment that you also that <laughs> requires putting it's, a tracker in their muscles um, so you know if they can actually hear the sound waves in, in water it's it's almost definite that somebody's done this experiment right yeah. this is kind of when when you're an academic and you're desperately trying to think of original research to get grants or to you know say nobody thought of this before and then you find out that you know in the 1970s somebody actually did put carp in a room and played you know abba probably because it was the 1970s is that is that is that correct or is that the 80 i don't know um <laughs> shrugging all around um somebody's done the experiment that's kind of the rule if you have an idea it's 
it's come up before, and that also applies for academic ideas. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of biosensors um, or like sensors in carp, I have some a story about biosensors um, because I I learned about the there's this this prize um, that Jeff Dyson or James Dyson or something uh, prize from James Dyson, James the, Dyson. the vacuum cleaner guy. Yeah. They um, they have the James Dyson Sustainability Award, I think, every year where they give like promising inventions um, with a focus on sustainability, um, prize money and attention. And there was one story that I came across on one of these like Instagram posts um, that makes stuff look super cool. And then you look into it and then it like the hype curve very quickly flattens. Um, mm -hmm. But I, uh, through that, I learned, first of all, the story that I saw there was um, an invention that used turns food waste into solar energy by creating solar panels that have um, specific UV-sensitive um, uh, compounds from plants embedded in a sort of resin, and you get these, like, neon-colored sheets, and then UV light hits them and uh, is transformed to visible light and that it's scattered along the plane of the glass and then at the edge you can put solar cells conventional solar cells that can turn the visible light into electric energy and then you get electric energy from uv light which is interesting because on a cloudy day there's more uv light reaching the earth than visible light um, mm -hmm. and solar panels regular solar panels are not very efficient but if you would use the uv portion of the light you could get some energy out of this However, um, I didn't find that, like, it has some problems because in the end you're still using solar panels that have a very bad um, efficiency and um, you're using a very small area because you're just using the edges of these panels um, and then you embed stuff in this resin. Like, the whole idea is that you can recycle food waste and then make something useful out of, the, out of it. Um, but then you're putting it into a plastic and then you create these big sheets of plastic I have my doubts about the uh, the efficiency, but they, they won a prize with that. But through that, in the same year, always mentioned as a side note in the article about these things that another, like, I have some beef with, like, all of the cool tech articles that are all copying from one another. So I literally, I tried to find more information. I found, like, a dozen different articles that all had the same pictures and the same words in the text. Um so I found another story about biosensors in, in breast cancer research because another project, they made a little box where you can put a urine sample and then you have electrical sensors that can actually sense molecules and then they do some data analysis and then can tell you the risk of getting breast cancer, whether or not you should get additional screening or not. This is their product. I have other issues with the product, but the biosensors was something I didn't know existed and I found it very cool. And then I started looking into this and there's actually, especially for breast cancer, quite a lot of research done on embedding antibodies, specific lipids, nucleic acids, all kinds of molecules in a sort of conductive chip thing where you can put a liquid on it and then it gives off um, an electric signal when a specific molecule and only a specific molecule is there. And so if you have, if you know that a specific protein in the urine is um, a marker for breast cancer and you find a sensor that fits to that one protein, you can make a little electric cell that can find this protein without doing other sort of conventional essays. And I can see your face, Tegan, and you're looking very critical. And this was what I was looking like when I was starting up reading no, on no, this. No, I mean, and then I found I, these papers and was like, this is, this is so sci-fi to me. I mean, you always have to find, for every molecule that you want to look at, you have to find the thing that works. Like, you can't just, like, like LEDs, like, 
make it in bulk and be like, look, we can make a ton of LEDs that shine light. You have for every of these components. It's a tricky thing. But when it works, it's like this sci-fi thing where you put like a liquid on a, on a little electrical thing and then it says like, bam, you have the molecule here. Um, and you can build. I guess I guess my major concern was so there's like some genetic variations like there's some sort of like this BCRA gene mm -hmm. where if you have the mutations in the gene that means that you're more susceptible to getting breast cancer but I'm not sure that I I don't really believe that they would be able to detect like the broken like the wrong proteins from that that seems unlikely to me which means that what they're sensing is probably some sort of response to the breast cancer, like hormones or something. And then my, my major thought is like, if you can now sense it in my pee, that suggests to me the cancer has got out of my breasts. Like that suggests that it's already like, yeah, I mean, I don't know through the body. And that's like, to be I know honest, breast screenings are not comfortable, but they do seem like a good option. Like, I think, I mean, the idea is that they give more like, Women who would not like to do the um, the uncomfortable procedure, they could then do something like this. And their, their, their pitch, I mean, it's all a prototype, but their pitch is then if you would have one of these devices in, in every household with women in it, then all the women in the household, um, all kinds of ages could use that and then sort of have this as a pre-screening thing. And they say they have a very low Yaren. false positive rate. But... Yeah, men can get breast cancer too. If uh, Archer taught you anything, it should have taught you that. <laughs> True true um but um th their product is full of buzzwords as well they say like they do six sensors they don't say which sensors um uh then they say it sends it to the cloud right they send it mm -hmm. to the cloud and then ai is analyzing it in the cloud and sending it to your smartphone app so all of this should tell you maybe not a good idea but the biosensors in itself um that sounds really exciting um i didn't know that we can do like electrical signaling, like use electrical com electronics to measure molecules in a liquid that are not just salt ions. I thought we, all we could do is like, is there salt or not? Because salt is electric, like you have conductivity. And so you can measure like how much salt you have or maybe oxygen electrodes or pH, but not that you can measure actual like individual mole types of molecules. And sometimes like in the but papers, you know they you said can like, do like femtomolar I mean, you know, range. you can... But you can, you know, you can do antibody testing and stuff like that from saliva. Like this, for sure, we can do. So, like, yeah, but I then have a, an electrical readout. It's not just like a color reaction, but something more sensitive than that. Like you don't like. I mean, you could build a device that you you do like the spit test for. Just like it COVID. reads the color. It's like these um these pregnancy tests, right? Yeah. Where like they put a little smiley face on the screen, but it's just doing chromatography. It's just doing like basic chromatography inside, yeah. and then it just like has a sensor to. I think you told me this. Yeah. It has a sensor to read that basic like pen and paper science and make an electrical signal for that, and like give a little smiley face or like a little plus sign or I don't know, yeah. a baby. I don't know how this works. Yeah, yeah. but exactly, but. Technically, it would be imaginable that you have an actual sensor, an electric electronic sensor, and you pee on the sensor, and then the sensor attaches to the molecule that you want to measure uh, to this like mm -hmm. pregnancy hormone, and then it gives an electrical readout, and then a computer can even quantify this. Um, and I mean, we we can do things like like Oxford nanopore, where we can like measure signals coming from the movement of different nucleic acids going through a pore. So, yeah. like theoretically, like this pore-based signaling that's very possible but i'm not yeah i, I don't know how this works honestly yeah. <laughs> but, but even just... if it is sci-fi like that's how that's how ideas start right like 
Yeah. It doesn't have to be something where we're like, let's all go buy stocks in this now, but it can be like, okay, that's an interesting idea. Um, and then we can go and look at old Star Trek episodes and found out that they were actually already doing that in the <laughs> 70s in Star Trek. Like how they already had like iPhones and smartwatches and yeah. I don't know, sonic screwdrivers. I think that's a different thing. <laughs> I don't know if we have sonic sc screwdrivers yet. Um, I'm just trying to make all of the like people a, shake their fists at me in anger. <laughs> I'm trolling <laughs> you guys. It's fine. Yeah, that's my favorite episode of Harry Potter when, when they get the sonic <laughs> screwdriver. We used to do this um, deliberately to my sort of like, a, a friend. Um, they deliberately sing the wrong tune song, the, the wrong theme song every time Game of Thrones came on and just be like singing the Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings. Or uh, <laughs> Some people are really easy to annoy and I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't, but um, speaking of biosensors, I'm sure a lot of you already saw this, but in nature... Um, Oh, a couple of weeks ago now, actually, it's from the start of April, there was a publication showing the a biosensor for the direct visualization of auxin. And auxin is another small molecule hormone that's in plants, a little bit like we were talking about earlier today, jasmonic acid. It's one of these things that's kind of involved in everything. Auxin is like really the big player. Um growth division deciding which bits of a plant become a leaf or a flower like responding to light finding out where your roots are supposed to go and which way is down like all of these things oxen is somehow involved um and this paper basically has shown that you can see oxygen sort of as it's moving around a plant so they basically used a sensor which um is something that can bind the oxen and when the auxin binds to the sensor, they, they stole the sensor from E. coli. So they stole something from E. coli and they manipulated it. Um, and it has a, a little pocket where the auxin can go into. And when the auxin snuggles into that pocket, there's kind of a confirmation or change. There's like a little bit of a change for this, um, this the sensor itself. And that change is then transferred to an attached fluorescent thing. So basically, auxin comes, there's a little bit of a wiggling happening, fluorescent readout, and suddenly you can see auxin, which is amazing and insane. And I guess there's going to be just a ton of publications tracking auxin, like, yeah. with the eye, basically, um, as it moves around the plant. Yeah, yeah. these these things are super useful uh, when because suddenly it gives you the possibility to do, um, like, 2D or 3D microscopy and follow molecules, um stuff that's like in real time you in don't real have to time, like yeah yeah you don't have to like kill everything freeze it you know dry it out and and stick it under and like you can like sort of watch things as you have responses it's it's kind of yeah. it's incredible honestly and uh, you just um said at one point oxygen and oxygen i just want to make it clear here it's oxygen is a different molecule from oxygen and um this is tracking the oxygen hormone not oxygen at one, only once, and I just to avoid any confusion, I want to say that now. It's auxin. It's not. It's it's auxin yeah. or auxin. It's not oxygen. Different things. Sorry, yeah, guys. Yeah, it's fine. I just wanted to because I could imagine like E. coli is also doing stuff with oxygen, and um, yeah. Anyway, that's really cool. I also saw the paper, but then I was like, ah, oxin is always so hard to tell what oxin do, oxin <laughs> is doing because it's doing everything, and I was like, okay. <laughs> awful but this could make it a little bit less awful <laughs> yeah. i found a story at the bbc um that's reporting about uh, on a different study 
um, where they were uh, analyzing our efforts to preserve biodiversity in different habitats. And oh in this study, they said, um, <laughs> and I found I, I, um, me personally, as a filthy communist, I quite liked it um, because they were saying like, we need an entire systemic change in the way we do trade and commerce um, to have any beneficial effect on biodiversity because the way we're throwing money at the problem is not really helping. Um, they they uh, compared, looked at an, a number of different projects, some of them like United Nations projects uh, to preserve biodiversity that sometimes have um, budgets in the range of dozens mil of millions or uh, like 130 million dollars um, but this is just a fraction of what is actually sort of what you're fighting against which is the commerce that has like tenfold as much money into the game mm. when it comes to like logging wood um, destroying habitats to grow uh, to, to grow crops and all of these things so not to mention that often that money is coming from those very companies <laughs> as a way of greenwashing <laughs> Exactly. Right. Um, and sometimes even the money then is going back into the industry. Um, there was mm. one study in a scheme in Costa Rica that was uh, designed to incentivize tree planting. And what they revealed when looking at this uh, critically is that they would take the money, they would grow um, these like artificial plantations of forests of non-native tree species that would grow quickly and then they would uh, turn them into wood pellets and sell them again. So it would do nothing for biodiversity. Um, it would just like fuel more the industry of exploiting the lands there um, and so uh, one of the um, researchers on the report Dr. Jessica Dempsey from the University of British Columbia said we need a broader rethink about how the rules of the economy are driving the sixth extinction um, and in the report the scientists are calling for like um, uh, a change in the way we do global commerce and global trading because if yeah. we continue the way we're continue doing it right now um, we can't protect biodiversity. Like we can throw a lot of money at it, but it won't do um, won't do a lot of good because the other factors are so much bigger, like orders of magnitude more uh, money in the game. That um, and therefore, it's pretty much um, completely ineffective to do anything there. Which is, on one hand, a devastating news to read this in in such a big report, um, but at the same time, it's sort of not unexpected working on my argument that like capitalism the way we have it right now is destroying the world and to save the world we have to destroy capitalism in one way or another maybe reform it maybe change it uh, maybe smash it i don't know but we can't keep on doing what we're doing right now and now there's even more like it's not the first study that found this but one like additional study that finds that we have to change the way we do things um what have i got i mean there was a, a quote that i saw in the nature briefing which was um from a researcher jeffrey bove he's um or they are a pain researcher and um built they built a lab in their garage to study whether massage can um, stop or stem the development of fibrosis in rats. Um, so they basically had a, a, a garage lab where they massaged rats. And the quote is, I like rats better than I like people, it turns out. And I think that kind of fits in with your, your <laughs> communist <laughs> themes. Um, otherwise, um, I want to mention a really cool blog post I read earlier today. I think I actually saw this retweeted by the Nature Plants um, Twitter page. And it's eukaryoterightsblog.com. We'll put the link in the show notes as always. Um, and the title of the blog post is There is no such thing as a tree. 
phylogenetically. And I love this because Yoram and I are both massive fans of um, the QI spin-off podcast, There's No Such Thing as a Fish. Um, and this is based on the fact that fish, what we call fish, are not one single group of spe- of, of, of organisms like fish can be closely more closely related to non-fish things than they are to other fish which means they don't group together which um is called not being monophyletic um so this kind of follows up on this idea and it's just discussing the fact that trees are not a single coherent phylogenetic category where all of them are most closely related to other trees than they are to other species and there are some really cool examples in the text um so the common ancestor of stinging nettles and a strawberry is a tree, <laughs> whereas the common ancestor of a maple and a mulberry tree is not a tree. <laughs> um, and then it goes on to kind of discuss what a tree actually is. So it's basically these kind of big, trunky plants that have a lot of wood. But as it turns out, having wood, um, the ability to create wood at the molecular level is actually something that most plants can do. So they have the ability... Um, to produce both cellulose and lignin. So lignin is this kind of main tissue that makes woodiness. Um, But it's just sort of deciding how much of it they make that becomes important. Um, And the really, really cool things I I thought that came up in the article. So in the Canary Islands, only the Canary Islands, wood, like being woody, has independently involved at least 38 times. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Um, there was a paper, and I haven't looked at the paper yet, but apparently researchers found that Arabidopsis, our crappy little weed that, like, you could eat in a salad, can become woody. It can grow a woody stem if you change the right conditions or knock out a couple, and and knock out a couple of genes, um, to sort of, you know, prevent the proper development. And it just kind of discusses this in. I mean, just imagine having like an Arabidopsis with like a little bit of bark around it, and you're like, you don't, you want to cut it down, but you need like a tiny chainsaw to actually <laughs> cut the Arabidopsis to take your samples. Yeah, that would uh, be fun. I, again, I haven't looked at that um, paper. They do have an image from the paper that it looks quite convincingly woody, like it looks like it could be a tree from a distance as opposed to an Arabidopsis stem close up. Um, And the other really cool thing about the blog post is it mentions these kind of trends of deciding about development in the context of um, newts and salamanders. So we discussed this like, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 episodes ago now, this fact that um, things like newts and salamanders, they just basically don't grow up. They stay in this like juvenile stage their whole life, which some of them just sort of stay there instead of becoming adult. Um, so it also discusses that. Um, and then it kind of goes on with many comments about how much respect we should all have for plant evolutionary biologists or botanists who are staring at something that looks like it should be a tree and trying to work out, you know, what that tree is related to. So it's a really nice read. Um, we'll put the link in as always and definitely go and check that one out. Yeah. Um, my next story is about nanoscale nutrients um, that can protect plants from fungal diseases. And this is uh, a very short story. Their idea is, um, or what they're actually doing already is, um, that they, when they sort of package fertilizer, nutrients for plants, you could do it sort of as a fine powder or in solution. Um, and if you put it in solution on the plants, um, it's very accessible for the plants, but also doesn't really linger around. It immediately is washed away. Like the plants get whatever they can take, but 
they have a maximum capacity of how many nutrients they can take up every day. So whatever they can't take up is just lost. It goes in the ground and feeds other things and not the plants. Um, whereas when you give them sort of bigger chunks, um, like you spray a, uh, like a, a powder of fertilizer, then it first has to go into solution so that the plants can take it up. So that means that it's there for much longer, but it's not as available. And uh, on this big spectrum of availability, there is the nanoscale range where you have nanoscale particles of the nutrients um, that can dissolve very quickly, but are also stable enough that they can linger around for a couple of days so that they can continuously provide food for the plant so that um, you uh, decrease the, the wash-off of these fertilizers while having very high accessibility. And they're testing that and they're developing these fertilizers for all kinds of different plant species, for crop species. Um, and the whole deal with fungal diseases is that they could see that plants that are very well um, supplied with these nutrients, they are fitter and therefore can, out of their own defense system, withstand fungi are much better so you don't have to spray as many different fun, uh, uh, fungicides to um to to help the plants deal with these these pests because the plants themselves they are so strong from this nanoscale fertilizer and the experiments that they have an increased resistance which could be a way of reducing uh, pesticide use by optimizing the way we fertilize plants because we're doing that anyway in the field and with that that could help sort of decrease by some fraction the amount of pesticides we have to spray but this is this is early days what they're developing right now is like these optimized nutrients in different nanoparticles and you can by adjusting like how tiny they are and like a nanoparticle is still arranged so within that range you can still adjust like do you want something that's very quickly available or something that's more slowly available um and so that's that's a pretty cool yeah new way of of providing plants with nutrients I feel like that's going to be something for humans as well. We already have these, you know, different, like like paracetamol painkillers, you can get them in different forms. And some of them are in these really rapidly, readily dissolvable sort of, not nanoparticles, but like smaller sized bubbles inside a, a, a light capsule, things mm -hmm. like that. So I wonder if we're going to get really into <laughs> doing this for human nutrition, all of these. Yeah. I mean, there's something in the article that a problem that they see in the future is when the public gets a hold that there is like nanoparticles on their food because it's sprayed on the crops that they get scared by the terminology and they think it's bad and their nanoparticles will go into their bodies when mm -hmm. it's just fertilizer that's dissolving and then it, it, taken up by the plant like any other fertilizer. Um, so they say like one of the things that they have to make sure in the future is that they... Um, that they educate the public or that they use the terminology in a way that they don't get scared of nanoparticles in their food. I mean, by, by the time they've developed this technology, we'll be ingesting so many other horrible things in our diet that people will just be like, it's just another thing. I mean, I think there was a news article this week that said that people in the worst affected areas are eating almost as much as a credit card card worth of plastic. They're ingesting that from microplastics every year. Like... At that stage, like, what's another, what's a few nanoparticles going to do, even if it was actually, like, a plastic thing? Like, <laughs> Yeah. <sighs> and my final fact for today is about um, uh, pseudopollen, pseudopollen um, which is something that you find uh, in different plants, but specifically in orchids. Um, and this is stuff that looks like pollen, 
but it's not actually pollen. And um, what is it? Some of it, like, is for example, it can be many different things. But some of it, for example, is like tiny hairs that grow out and then break off, and they make this pollen-like dust on the surface of the flowers. Um, mm -hmm. that looks like pollen, but it doesn't actually hold any of the pollen cells in there. It's not useful for um, uh, for, for propagation. Uh, some of the pseudopollen can be nutritious, but some of it is also not really nutritious for any animals. And so the question was like, what is the point of that? And is this actually um, taken up by any animals? Because um, there is this, uh, this orchid, C. vardii, uh, in the in the forested mountains of the Sichuan province in China, and um, there these um, they they don't form any nectar and they don't have edible pollen. So the question is why would even why would animals go there like insects, hoverflies and some bees? Why would they visit the flower if there's nothing for them to get there if there's no nutrients? Mm. And so they caught some of these insects, brought them to the lab and looked into their digestive tracts and they found that they would actually eat the pseudopollen. And they would find in the pseudopollen some lipids um, that would probably then provide a nutritional value. So the pseudopollen um, is, in this case, a nectar alternative that is then sort of the beneficial, like it, it makes it beneficial for both the flowers and, uh, and the insects. The insects get some nutrients and the flower doesn't make nectar, but instead makes the pseudopollen. So it's sort of a nectar alternative. Okay. But so sometimes I get like bao, these like little steamed, you know, fluffy dumplings and they have the rice paper on the bottom of them. Well, it's not rice paper. It's actually just paper paper. And sometimes I accidentally eat the paper paper. And like, I don't have a lot of cellulases in my gut. I don't have a lot of like beneficial microorganisms that can help me really digest that paper. But potentially if a scientist dissected me and found the bao paper in my stomach, they'd be like, well, you know what? Like it is cellulose like it is actually something that could be nutritional <laughs> in this case do we know if like the pseudopollen just happens to have some lipids that theoretically could be nutritional or like i mean it still seems like a loss like like i want to see the side by side where you see an insect eat some actual pollen um and <laughs> an insect eat the pseudopollen i imagine it's still not great because it's wasting energy eating it it's probably not getting a lot out of it um yeah. What's the comparison, energetically speaking? And also, yeah. I guess from the plant, we already must be assuming or we must know that producing like little crappy hairs is less energetically costly than actually producing next generational pollen. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. They in the article that I read, they don't really go into the into these details. They say that this is the first time that they could see show that pseudopollen seems to be a real reward. So not just something mm -hmm. not like a trickery by the plant, but to get some insects that they would tr like to eat the pollen, but then they eat the pseudopollen. That's sort of worthless. But then they get also some real Again, pollen on their backs. Sometimes and then the paper is stuck really close and. <laughs> <laughs> or like with a kebab like a falafel wrap and then you're like tearing the the paper as you go and sometimes you just don't you're consuming the falafel wrap too fast and you can't tear that paper off fast and some of the some of the paper goes in like to that's all we're saying to me it's aluminium foil with like a, a, a kebab that's wrapped in aluminium foil and sometimes it's like in you're the crevices of the, of the wrap and then you it's like you don't see it and then suddenly you have like 
aluminium folly and marble thing like <laughs> but there you go you could be like well i mean humans need minerals including some metal ions maybe him ingesting you know maybe it helps him not sweat i think aluminium is in deodorant to prevent perspiration maybe it's actually <laughs> helping him attract a mate and it's improving his like sexual prowess by eat like they can i can make a story to say that it's beneficial for you to eat kebab foil but it doesn't mean it's yeah. beneficial for you to eat kebab for Yoram, stop eating the kebab foil. <laughs> yeah, it's like a trickery by the kebab person that's selling it to me. Uh, I, I want to get real kebab and I'm making pseudo kebab out of aluminium foil um, to trick me. Well, sometimes they um, do that. They wrap it a lot and then it looks a lot bigger than it is, right? I mean, that's never been a problem with kebab in Germany because any kebab you buy in Germany is like eight times more food than you should humanly be able to consume. It's just like immense. But... <laughs> They could bulk it up, you know, theoretically, like in another country that's not Germany, you could like have <laughs> a little bit of the aluminium foil, so it looks like nice and big <laughs> and fluffy. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like a scent worth of aluminium foil. Yeah. But anyway, I don't There's think that they are... There's someone in the back just like uh, massaging the foil to like crimple it a little bit to give it some volume. Like, mm. it's like, like that get guy, the guy who's who massaging the rats. rats. <laughs> exactly that guy. He's got a side job. We're sorry, George, if your name was George. <laughs> So yeah, I don't. Um, I, I imagine that the researchers working on this study they did, did not just make up a story about some raps that end I'm, up. I'm not saying I'm not saying they made it up. I'm just saying like that you could it's make one it of, up. Yeah, I'm saying no, <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's one of those like always the questions in like mm-hmm. evolutionary biology stuff where like you should never ask why because there might not be a why. Like it's it's kind of yeah. I guess if it was killing the bugs, then they would stop going to those plants altogether. Um, and maybe if it was like still negative for them they would still also avoid that like so yeah they can be kind of it can't be like completely horrible for them yeah but it's it's one of those things where you're like if we question the why it's not that the pseudopollen is beneficial as so much as like it hasn't been bad enough to make the bugs go away yet (laughs) like yeah don't ask why in evolutionary biology that's the take-home message i think never ask why yeah, that's why my uh, fun facts for for today. I have a a cat fact. Um, I have, have a really quick else? cat fact before you give your cat fact. So this is just again, no, mine is like really quick. It's literally okay. a title. <laughs> um, by Stud et al. It came out in twenty twenty one. Um, in methods in ecology and evolution. Um, sorry, in April twenty twenty one, and they were looking at um Canada lynx. And trying to understand how it is hunting, specifically how it's hunting snowshoe hares. So this is Lepus americanus. And these snowshoe hares are like a really important species because they're this thing that molts its fur in the summer and it switches color between the summer and the winter. So in the summer, it's kind of brown because there's no snow. And then it becomes white. It, it puts on a winter coat, like literally like shoves on a winter coat of, of whiteness to blend in with the snow. And they are not doing well with climate change because they're missing, they're misunderstanding the new clues and you've got brown rabbits hopping around on the snow and white rabbits hopping around on the dirt in summer and it's a mess and it's not great. Um, but this kind of, <laughs> the, the, the snowshoe hares and also the Canada lynx um, and some other predator species are sort of important in, in this food web up in the north. Anyway, the, the entire point of this research was to mention the title, which is The Perfect Catch, using accelerometers and audio recorders to document kill rates and hunting behavior of a small prey specialist, which is a lynx. 
I commend and applaud the authors for not shying away from perfect catch. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but it's like that's natural selection. Like I imagine in the next what, that couple, the bunnies are screwed by yeah, by climate change. I think in the next couple of generations, um, the ones that adjusted just by chance in the right. Direction. Firstly, they won't adjust just hard enough. Secondly, it's like an extra thing where so the snowshoe hairs are called snowshoe hairs because they have little, they have huge feet, which is a snowshoe, so they can hop on top of the snow, which gives them a huge advantage over big predators that sink into the snow. They can basically like walk on water, except it's frozen water and it's snow, and that helps them survive where otherwise they would be gobbled up by lynxes. Not having snow and also being brown <laughs> just means that like. <laughs> They're getting popped into lynx mouths. I think coyotes is also up there. There's another predator as well. I forget. Um, the bunnies are not doing well. That's okay. that's all I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a problem with climate change. It's always too fast. Like uh, usually. Yeah, like, that's the problem with climate change. In, in, in the biology textbook, <laughs> this would be the example where, like, look, all the ones that had the wrong color at this point in time, they were eaten, and so only the ones with the right color survived, and then. They yeah, would sort of spent, reinforce that spent, trait. Like literally millennia reinforce, reinforcing that trait where it's like, okay, now when the days become this short or whatever the cues are, that's when we change our coats. And now climate change is like, hey, hey, early spring, hey, hey, no snow. Like, yeah. The poor, poor bunnies is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I have. That was my cat fact. Poor bunnies. <laughs> I have a, cat, a fact that's less uh, like that's only a cat fact because the picture in the article features a cat, um, but it's also actually uh, um, about fifty-five different mammal species and forty-six bird species, which feels again like the one time I brought for Faf plant uh, favorite plant an entire genus of plants. <laughs> this time I'm bringing to cat facts almost a hundred different or over a hundred different species. Um, are some of them are cats? At least some of them have to be cats. Some, some of them ha are cats. Um, because mm. the researchers went into the, the zoo um, and they started filming the animals, uh, like many people do, but they were specifically filming them to watch them yawn. And then they would uh, record as many yawns as possible and they get uh, over uh, like almost 1,300 separate yawns from zoo trips and online videos. Um, for this like over 100 species between mammals and birds and then they correlated the yawning yeah you yawning I mean like while reading that I was getting infected with yawning and started yawning so I'm trying, I'm trying not to, to make you yawn now I'm trying life. not to yawn during the now, you just make me feel like a dentist the way you're p opening your mouth there I'm just like <laughs> I'm burying you, my you mouth floss, at your is that the yawning sound? <laughs> 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 um, they figured out uh, in this analysis that there's a correlation between brain size or a neuron count and the duration of the yawn. Um, with like some mice having just like 0.8 seconds of a yawn uh, with a very small brain and the, the human with like a very big brain, um, especially me, I have the biggest brain, um, uh -huh. it has um, cool. Cool the, the longest yawn is 6.5 seconds from humans. And they... Uh, what? Hmm? Do we yawn for six seconds? According to the study on average. Okay. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. there must be some people much longer and some people just like... Oh done like a okay. mouse um so they we don't really know why we're yawning and we don't know why yawning is infectious either uh one of the theories that we have is that it's for cooling our brains because we're pulling mm -hmm. in 
cold air. We're bringing colder, colder blood to our heads and that cools them down. And so if there would be a cor like the correlation between brain size and duration of the yawn fits within that hypothesis that the bigger the brain, the longer we have to yawn to actually cool it down. From a okay. thermodynamic point hypothesis, of view. <laughs> the ones who have the bigger brains are smarter and therefore they're bored by all of the silly animals. So they're just like yawning. They're like, oh, the mouse is talking again. What an idiot mouse. Like, that's <laughs> hypothesis number two. We should test both of them equally and put both of them with funding. Like equal <laughs> money for both. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think thermodynamically, I don't know if 0.8 seconds or 6.5 seconds are enough to transfer any significant amount of heat. It's like, it's the breast cancer urine thing all over again. It's like, how is that getting from A to B? Yeah. Just, you know, like our brain is inside our head for a reason because it's inside. It's very safe. At the same time, I'm not a yawnologist, so I don't know um, the science behind yawning. <laughs> so... <laughs> Not falling for it. I suppressed one. I can suppress another yawn. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's like speaking speaking of being of the infectious nature of yawns. Um, there's a quote from one of the, the biologists in the study, Margarita Hartlieb, from uh, University of Vienna in Austria. She says, "Getting video footage of so many yawning animals requires quite some patience, and the subsequent coding of all these yawns has made me immune to the contagiousness of yawning." Um, because I think if you do nothing but looking at like literally over a thousand different yawns at one point, they don't work anymore on you. You're primed. This was done. You're primed with the yawning, and so you're not yawning anymore. Same thing. Callback. Again, not to not to constantly be insulting this research because it actually sounds really cool. Um, but you know when people have research and you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, you just did that research, that experiment, because you wanted to go to the cool destination. Like, this person just wanted to go to the zoo a lot. Like, they just were like, how can I justify spending all of my lab time at the zoo watching the monkeys? Here's how. <laughs> they said they said that going to the zoos was a pretty long haul um, in the interview. So It's so hard. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done is sit at the zoo and watch yeah. the monkeys. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am kidding. I mean, obviously, it is, it's cool research and it's super interesting. And it's... It's weird to me that like we still don't know why we yawn. That seems like, yeah, that's that's bizarre. Yeah, it is. I also I don't know why. Also, like, you don't know. I, I personally don't know. Stop asking me like all the researchers every single day. I'm getting like phone calls. Why are we still yawning, Yoram? And I'm like, I mm. don't know. Stop. And then he starts talking about Bitcoin. They're like, Oh, I know now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Yoram. It was just there. It was just there. <laughs> Nah, it's fine. Okay, and with that, I think we have to finish the show. Um, thank you for bearing with us and our very tired and insane brains today. Um, if you want to follow us on all of the social medias, you can follow Yoram on Twitter. Yeah, that's at Plants Pipettes. And you can follow me on Instagram and sometimes on Facebook, which is at Plants and Pipettes. We also have a website, plantsandpipettes.com, where you can find this podcast and new stories about the world of plant science. And our opening and closing music by, was Caravana by Philip Gross. Yes, and goodbye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>